Welcome to the CBIA BizCast powered by Google. I'm Amanda Marlowe, and today I'm joined by CBIA HR counsel, Diane McCriskey. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. We're happy to have you here. There's obviously so much. I know that your door is always open, but you're always on the phone talking to different employers. There's so many administrative tasks that employers are dealing with these days, and receiving a notice of a complaint or a violation on top of everything else can be a little bit overwhelming. Definitely, yep. And so we kind of want to talk to you a little bit about where we can start, um, where we can begin, what are some of these examples that you're hearing a lot of employers are getting and maybe are a bit overwhelming at first. Okay, yeah, it can definitely be overwhelming. I mean, especially for small businesses when you don't have someone in charge of HR and you're dealing with trying to figure out what all the laws are and state and federal and keeping everything up to date and then you get a complaint um, it can be very overwhelming and the complaints can come from a lot of different agencies. Um, you could get something from the IRS or the Department of Revenue who are upset because you aren't withholding taxes. You could get a CHRO complaint. You can get something from the Labor Department or OSHA. So there's a lot of different things. Um, and so today I just wanted to talk a little bit I think about the discrimination complaints and the Labor Department. Okay, so let's start with those uh, discrimination and complaints. Yeah. Um, what will it look like and mm -hmm. what's the first step you should take? So the way you'll find out that you're being accused of discrimination is you'll actually get an email. It used to be much more formal than that, but now the CHRO just sends out the complaints via email. And so um, you'll get the complaint paperwork and you'll get a cover letter. And so the first thing that the employer should really do is read through that letter and figure out what the deadlines are. Um, and really it's important to, you know, sometimes an employer might go back a week, they're scrolling through their e emails and they say, oh my God, I have this email from the CHRO. Because the date that you receive the email is the date that the deadline actually starts to run. So it's important, the first thing you do is you figure out, okay, when is something due? What's, the, when, what's that deadline? And it's usually gonna be about a month in the future. And then really the second thing that I think you should do is see if you have insurance to cover this type of claim. Um, a lot of employers actually don't realize that they have something called Employment Practices Liability Insurance, or EPLI. So you should um, call your insurance broker and just see, is this something that's tacked on to my uh, other types of insurance coverage? Because if you do have coverage, that's huge. It really makes a big difference. And if you don't have insurance, then I actually recommend that you contact a lawyer, um, at least initially, to get an initial sense of, of what it entails. So really, at the beginning, it's going to come in that form of an email, not an email that you want to say, okay, let me look at this in a week. Right. I mean, if you get an email from really any state agency, you should really open that up and take a look at what that is, yeah. And typically, you have a month to get in touch with your insurance and kind of make a decision about what you're going to do. Well, yeah, you have a month typically to respond in writing. And so your deadline, as soon as you get that email, that deadline starts ticking. And so um, it's important to keep track of that because let's say you notice the email a week later and then you think about it and are angry about it for a few days and then you finally call a lawyer maybe a week after that. At that point, you only have a couple of weeks to respond. And so, yeah, but that's the first step is responding in writing. Okay, and what comes next? So after you respond, 
Um, the CHRO takes a look at the papers and decides if it's just completely frivolous. And this does not usually happen, but in some minority of cases, they take a look and they say either this guy wasn't even employed or you know something completely obvious that makes them know that they can dismiss the complaint outright. So they get rid of those. Assuming your case gets past that, there are uh, three further stages after that. The CHRO will try to mediate it, and then if it doesn't settle, so mediation means settle, if it doesn't settle, they'll conduct an, an investigation, and if it stays even past that, there'll be hearings. And so the entire process can take years, really. And now I imagine if you first get the complaint, either it's something that you are somewhat aware of, or usually it's probably maybe not. Yeah, I would actually say at least what clients tell me is that they were not aware of it. So what happens? How do you determine from initially if, it, if it's true and how yeah. you're going to respond? Well, so that'll be just like the CHRO does an investigation. You and your lawyer will do an investigation. So you'll read through. The complaint will be in numbered paragraphs, and they'll just be itemized allegations. You know, it could just be, my name's Joe Brown, and I worked at your company, and I was fired because I'm black, right? And so it's just your job, and they'll list witnesses and, what, you know, what the allegations are. And so it'll be your job as the employer to work with your lawyer and talk to witnesses and see if you can figure out if that actually did happen. And typically, when you, if you work with your insurance, mm -hmm. what's the difference between going with your insurance or if you have to hire a lawyer? Well, the best thing about going with your insurance is that they'll give you a lawyer and that you don't pay for. <laughs> and so there's typically a deductible. If it's only a couple thousand dollars, then that's great um, because you cannot you cannot uh, finish an employment discrimination case for a couple thousand dollars. So you pay that deductible, and then the carrier pays for your attorney and pays any settlement, pays damages. So I guess the biggest difference is peace of mind, but but initially the biggest difference is that you won't be choosing the attorney. The attorney will be assigned to you, but it will be someone who specializes in this area. And once you have the attorney, whichever way you get that, um, what's the process like from there working with them? So the attorney's going to want to know who who the witnesses are. You know, they'll be conducting lots of interviews, um, collecting documents, maybe payroll records, things like that. And really what should happen initially is that the uh, employer and the attorney should be talking about how the employer feels about settlement. Because I think a lot of employers um, initially, assuming they don't know, let's say they're very surprised by the allegation and the allegation is very personal, like you're a racist, you fired me because I'm black, that can cause a lot of emotions. It makes people really angry and upset. And I think a lot of employers can say, like, as a matter of principle, I'm taking this all the way. And what that means is that <clears throat> five or six years later, you may have won, as they say, but you've paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And so in attorney's fees. So it's important that the uh, company owner and the attorney talk about, let's, let's talk about this logically, right? Like, how long do we want to fight this? And what is the budget? And 
is settlement something that we want to talk about? So you talk about that at the same time that you're kind of investigating and interviewing people. It seems like this process can go on for a very long time. There can be a lot of emotions. What are a couple of things that you tell employers to remember throughout this process? One thing that I really try to emphasize a lot, and I know this is really difficult, but I always say try not to take it personally um, because you, you almost can't, right? You get this complaint in the mail and it's accusing you of terrible things, really personal things like you're racist or you harassed me, right? Those are very personal, but a lot of times um, it's if you can, if it's possible at all, the best advice I can give is to just try to look at this as a cost of doing business, unfortunately. If one of your managers or something happened in your um, workforce that was not right, we'll address that and we'll fix it, right? But if something didn't happen and the complaint is not legitimate, we'll deal with that too and we'll just be methodical about it and try not to get emotional about it because that's when poor decisions are made. Especially when it lasts so long, you don't want to be right. up on it's it. It's exhausting, truly, um, to go through litigation and be deposed. You're constantly being pulled away from your work and then testifying. It's a terrible experience, truly, um, and it's not something that you want to do. So if you can be businesslike about it and see if you can nip it in the bud early, that's really the best case scenario. Great. And, you know, we have so many law firms that we work with here at CBIA that help with this when people do hire a lawyer. Um, we have a lot of resources on CBIA's website as well. That's right. To help with this process. Yeah. So, and that actually happens frequently where uh, CBIA members will call me for that kind of initial summary, like, oh my God, I just got this complaint. What do I do? And I can talk to them about the initial steps that they take, and then I can actually recommend an attorney as well. And there are other violations that yes. we talked about at the beginning, yeah. one being from the Department of Labor. <clears throat> right. Um, tell me a little bit about what makes these different. Labor Department complaints are different because of what we were just saying, they're less personal. And so, whereas with the CHRO complaint, like we were saying, you get these allegations that you've done these horrible things and you know exactly who the complainant is. A lot of times with a labor department complaint, you actually don't know who started the complaint. Um, sometimes you do, but sometimes what's actually very common is that a person gets fired and then they go to the labor department and they give them a tip. Like, hey, why don't you go visit this company? They're doing this, they're not paying overtime or they're, they accuse them of something. And then you get something in the mail from the labor department saying it's our understanding you're doing X inappropriately, what do you have to say about that, right? And so you're, you're kind of thinking, I don't even know who this person is, I don't know what I'm being accused of, and it's really more of a document heavy thing. With the Labor Department, it's really, it's all about what do you have, what documents do you have to show that you're paying people correctly, that you're keeping track of their hours, and if you have that, you're golden. So is that kind of the, the first step for employers when they receive one of these complaints? Yeah, I mean, it's the same in the sense that it's probably a good idea to contact a lawyer or CBIA, but um, yeah, you wanna go back to your payroll records and I mean, the worst case scenario, which is actually very common, is that you don't have records and that's where you're gonna be in some trouble. Okay, so this is, 
you know, obviously one of those areas. And we can talk about in a couple of minutes what employers can do to take preventative steps. Yeah. Um, but in terms of these kind of complaints, a lot of it is they're not keeping records um, and then also misclassifying. Right. Yeah, so the so there's a there's an entire division at the labor department that's just for wage and hour violations. And so it really comes down to keeping records of when people start and end work, what are you paying them, things of that nature. And so when you misclassify someone, what we're talking about is you're classifying them as an independent contractor or a, a consultant, for example, and you're not going to make them an employee. And so it's the same it's the same idea because they're an independent contractor in your mind you're not keeping records or you're not paying them overtime so it all comes down to that that initial issue. Okay. And that's something that we see more often. Yeah, I mean misclassification is huge with both the federal department it's actually there are lots of agencies that care about this. Um, so you could get a complaint it's going to be more like a notice of a violation. You could get it from the IRS or the Department of Revenue, and they care about this because if you misclassify someone as, in, as independent, it means you're not withholding taxes. And if you're not withholding taxes, potentially the IRS is not getting their taxes, and so they care about that. And the Labor Department cares because maybe you're not going to give someone unemployment insurance and the CHRO cares because if you misclassify someone, it means they don't have the protection of those anti-discrimination statutes. So there's a lot of different reasons to make sure that you follow these rules uh, correctly. Okay. And so all of these different departments, do they all look at this the same way? They, they have similarities, but unfortunately, each agency has their own test for how to tell if you've misclassified someone, and you have to follow all of them. Um, but they have similarities, like I said. So for example, let's say um, you get a letter from the Department of Revenue and they say you haven't um, withheld taxes for this employee for all this time, so prove that he's independent. And the way that the test that that Department of Labor will use is they want to know, can that worker control how they do the work, what work they do, when they do it, uh, whether the worker can suffer a loss, so the example that I always give is a plumber. So let's say I run a law practice and um, the sink in the bathroom explodes. And I don't, obviously, I'm not gonna fix that, right? So I hire a plumber and he's independent. I don't care how he fixes that sink, I just want it done. I only care about the result. And so he, the plumber's gonna decide what tools he's gonna use, how many hours it's gonna take him, he might, if he doesn't charge me enough, he might suffer a loss if he doesn't figure out his expenses correctly. So that guy is independent. If instead I decided I need some legal help for a little while, I'm going to hire someone independent to do legal work. Well, legal work is what I do. And so that's, um, and I'm gonna, probably going to supervise that person and I'm going to tell them what hours they work. So that's the, what the Department of Revenue looks like. Okay. And then actually in the state of Connecticut, uh, the Labor Department has an entirely different test, which is very difficult to meet, actually. And the way this might come up is, let's say you hired someone as an independent contractor and the, the job ended for whatever reason. That worker might then say to themselves, you know, I think I was actually an employee and I would like unemployment insurance. I'd like benefits. 
So they go to the labor department, they say they were actually a worker the whole time. And so the test that the state of Connecticut will use is, is a three-part test. And so you have, the first part is that the worker has to be in an independently established business. So the worker's not just working for me, they've got business cards, maybe a website, and when they're done fixing my sink, they're gonna go fix someone else's sink. Uh, the next thing is that they have to work completely independently with no supervision. And then the third thing is that they have to, um, what we were talking about before with the plumber, they have to do the type of work that's different from my type of work. And if they can't meet that, then this part's a little strange. They have to just work physically someplace totally different from where I am, which nowadays is not that different if you work remotely. But um, like with the, again, with the plumber, he's gonna have no supervision. He's gonna work for other people besides me and he's gonna do something different from me. And so this is why I think a lot of employers get in trouble when they um, have former employees come back as independent and that can almost never work because the, that worker is probably gonna do the same work they always did it's gonna be the type of work that that employer does for its clients. They're gonna to wanna to supervise, and that worker's probably not gonna have business cards where they're working for other people too. So that's, a, that's actually a common mistake that employers make. Okay, and with the example with uh, hiring a lawyer, yeah. so if they're working from a different office that's not mm -hmm. yours, that mm -hmm. helps you get past that test? Yeah, that would be one factor of the three. And so that lawyer could maybe pass the test if I didn't supervise them at all. And so that would mean like I had no ability to say to that lawyer, I want you to work on this case today and I want you to focus on this part of the law. Like I wouldn't be able to work with them really at all. They would just do it on their own. Um, they would do it out completely different physically from where I am and then they would have to also be working for other law firms. You know, like this is just something that they do, they do a little bit for me, they do a little bit for another law firm, and so that makes them independent. Okay, and then time cards. Obviously this is somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> time cards, that's a whole nother, we can touch on that briefly, that's a whole yes. nother bizcast. But yeah, I, the thing with time cards, keeping records and things like that, honestly I think like the, one of the most common mistakes that employers make is they try to be the like the cool employer the 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 employee's friend and they say yes I'll pay you via Venmo right because that's modern and it's so convenient but that's paying under the table it's not allowed and the problem is that while you have this good relationship with the employee that's great you pay them via Venmo you say eh, let's just say you work nine to five it's roughly correct, and we won't, we won't bother writing it down. And everyone's getting along great until next year when you're not getting along great. And so you let the employee go, and then he files a complaint. And the problem here is that if you don't have records to show what hours the employee actually worked or how much you paid and that you withheld taxes, Whatever the employee says he worked is what the labor department will presume to be true. So the employee could say, I worked 16 hour days every day. And if you don't have the records to show that that's not true, what the employee says is true. And so, and then to just top it off, 
let's say the Labor Department says, okay, so you owe $25,000 in back wages, we're going to double that just as a punishment. So now you owe $50,000. So it's like the, the downside of kind of being cooperative with the employee and saying, wink, wink, yes, we'll do this off the table. It really comes back to be, um, really comes back to bite you in the end. And those time card issues are often a lot of times stemming from these complaints as well. Yeah, I mean, the so you can have people complain who are current employees, you can have people get angry when they're fired, um, and the Labor Department can come in and just say, we want to see every single time card that you have, and if you don't have any, you're not in good shape there. <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, with CRO, we talked about how CBI has a number of resources. Mm -hmm. State, at the Connecticut Department of Labor, we also offer some services internally that help. Yeah, so we have on our website, you can search for all those issues. Um, we also put on a lot of events that are geared towards these issues. Um, a lot of employment law events, sometimes in person and sometimes webinars, and you can find those online as well. And we really gear those events toward um, issues that we know employers are facing. And then um, we have the hotline, of course. Um, so we have a hotline that I answer and that my partner, Philip Montgomery, answers. So if you have a question about a wage issue, you can call and we'll help you with that. Yeah, especially with the wage issues, you can help uh, an employer get pretty, the beginning of the process right. of responding. Yeah, I, I, so my role at CBIA, I'm not any of the members' attorney. Right, but I can definitely um, advise them on what the law is, how to handle the complaint, uh, what types of documents they're going to need to find, um, and so forth. Yeah, and just you know, overall, this is a stressful experience for employers, but one that happens pretty often uh, across the board. So, what, what would you say for employers, either or? It's a lot of records that they have to do, things to do in advance, but mm -hmm. when they get that email. <clears throat> so for the labor department, they're, they're different. For okay. the labor department, I would actually say um, if it looks like the, the issue is relatively minor or clear cut, let's say, the Labor Department actually really appreciates it if you call them, e even without a lawyer, and you say, I did not know this rule, um, I fixed it, then the Labor Department will very often not fine you, not charge you double damages, not assess any penalties, and you will have to pay what you should have paid all along, whatever those back wages are. But with the CH or any of these agencies, they have no interest in long protracted litigation. Nobody wants it to last five years. And so if you can resolve it and just say, I didn't realize that's what the rule was. I will fix my time cards going forward. I'll pay this employee what I should have paid and let's just end it and everyone will be thrilled. Um, so I, say, I guess I would say for the labor department, that's an important thing to keep in mind. You can actually avoid penalties that way. Okay. And for the CHRO, I think, like I mentioned before, my biggest tip is just to, to be calm and not let your emotions take over. Yeah. That, Cause that's just a really stressful, thing to get in the mail. A lot and like of times. we said there, the difference is with those you know who you're dealing with. Yeah, which, and just by definition, the allegation is going to be terrible, <laughs> you know? And so it's either something that you're being accused of doing or some of your employees, 
and it's just uh, something that you have to deal with methodically and try not to get too personal about it. Well, thank you so much, Diane. You're welcome. It's we my know pleasure. You're answering these questions all the time and really wanted to give everyone another platform to come listen and see more about what you are helping people with and get some advice today. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's BizCast. You can listen and subscribe to our podcast on Apple or YouTube. And for more episodes, head on over to CBIA.com.